On Tuesday night, Donald Trump announced that he's running for president of the United States for a third time. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today we're talking once again with Eugene Perrier from Breakthrough News about the development, Donald Trump running for president once again. Eugene, welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. Really happy that you're here, Eugene, because you've been following Donald Trump for a long time. One of the things that stood out, I think, in Trump's announcement, we're going to talk a little bit about what he said and what he didn't say. He didn't talk about 2020 as a stolen election, for instance. I mean, we'll talk about why he sort of avoided that topic, which has been his predominant theme in the last couple of years. But the thing that jumped out at me, and I I know you've paid a lot of attention to this, is that Trump was presenting himself as the, the friend of the working man, the friend of the U.S. working class, that he is representative of the broad masses of people who go to work every day. But if one thinks about Donald Trump's legacy, either as a capitalist uh, real estate developer, a mogul, a so-called billionaire, maybe he is, maybe he's not, and his time in the, in the White House, his record shows that he's anything but a friend of the working class. So I think it's important because this is Trump's message to talk about the real record of Donald Trump. No, and I think it's critically important because the mainstream media, I mean, there's so many things we could say that could indict the mainstream media in the United States. And I think that from my point of view, this is one of the most unbelievable fallacies that the media has allowed to, in fact, you know, grow and, in fact, promoted themselves. This idea of Donald Trump as the pro-working class guy, the Republicans as the working class party. But, you know, let's just look at the record. Let's look at the facts. I mean, you know, you almost don't even know where to start. It's so ridiculous. Uh, And it shows also how working class issues aren't reported well. But, you know, you look at a presidency like Donald Trump, you know, at least about 60 percent of America are working parents who need access to some form of child care. And the United States is one of the countries that stands alone and having no national paid leave of any sort. So the Trump administration and the Republicans were trying to speak to this reality because the Democrats, of course, are constantly raising this point, although never doing that much about it. And they said, well, we're going to propose our own paid family leave proposal. But the crux of that paid family leave proposal is in order for a working parent, a working mother, a working father, a working family to be able to get this paid family leave, they would have to give up some of their social security benefits. So essentially to get paid family leave, it's to cut social security. So robbing Peter to pay Paul, if you could ever say that about anything. So that's clearly an anti-working class policy. Donald Trump also under the aegis of his National Labor Relations Board and his Labor Department. And it's worth noting that the NLRB general counsel under Trump is the guy who is one of the key 
figures in breaking the PATCO union during the Reagan administration in the early 1980s, which of course has historically been held up as the starting gun of this massive anti-labor offensive, much of which we're still living under today. But in this space, one of the things that they did is in something called the joint employer rule. Now, the joint employer rule is a rule that was instituted at the behest of low-wage worker unions that says this, essentially. Big companies like McDonald's, who operate heavily over franchises and make a huge amount of profits from the franchises, but they claim the franchises are their own businesses. So when workers say, well, we want to raise the people who own the franchises, and sometimes they're lying about this, but let's just say it's true. They say, well, we're just a small business and we can't afford it. We're not actually McDonald's. And so then ultimately it means that the huge corporate golden arches conglomerate of McDonald's is not responsible for the poverty wages being paid to the workers at McDonald's. So the joint employer rule says that if you are McDonald's, and as anyone who knows anything about franchises know, as the big corporate chain, and you can control everything about how the franchise operates, what they offer, what uniforms people wear, all the different policies that are at play, that you are in fact responsible for the employee's wages from the profits you make. And thus, it made things like the fight for 15 and the huge number of low-wage workers in this country made their struggle a lot easier to wage because it meant that the big corporations for whom they're generating sky-high profits would then actually be legally required to pay them higher, not poverty wages, which previously they were not. So Donald Trump came down on the side of employers not having to do anything about the poverty wages of their employees as long as they classify them as employees under franchises. You can make the same point that Donald Trump wanted to veto or said he would veto a law that would raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour in the United States like the Raise the Wage Act, which speaks to this low-wage worker point here because 32 million workers in America would get a raise under the Raise the Wage Act, an average of $3,300 per person. So thousands of dollars per worker for 32 million workers. So whether it's cutting Social Security, which they wanted to do in and of itself, and raise the retirement age under Trump, whether it's not having any real paid family leave, whether it's trying to destroy the rights of low-wage workers and the rights of unions more generally, Donald Trump made it more difficult under his presidency for unions to talk to workers on the job. He made it easier for employers to fire employees for organizing unions on the job. And he claims to love all these great manufacturing jobs in the history of America, all of which was made possible really by the organized labor movement in the United States, at least in terms of workers here in the U.S., what made it possible. And when you look at it like that, he did everything possible to destroy that entity, even though it was you know one of the key factors in this era. He claims to be an era of great prosperity. There's a lot of things you could say about all those different things, a lot of caveats. But as you can see down the line, almost every single policy enacted by Donald Trump was an anti-worker policy. And just to put a fine point on it before we move on, when you look at the big issue that Trump said, I'm going to bring back manufacturing jobs. Not only were there fewer manufacturing jobs at the end of his presidency than the start, but And this is the crucial point, because some people say, well, what about COVID? If you strip out the manufacturing jobs lost during COVID, Trump's rate of creating manufacturing jobs was no higher than President Obama's. And of course, almost everyone said that was far too low and it was not good for large portions of the country that depend on manufacturing. So at the end of the day, Trump kept, didn't even keep his main promise to the working class in the United States. And then in terms of his actual policies, he did everything possible to make it easier for employers to have more power over employees and make more money as a result. Yeah, very, very important facts. Eugene, the minimum wage was last raised, the federal minimum wage was last raised in 2009. Mm. So we're talking about 13 years with no pay raise. It's $7.25 an hour. Donald Trump promised that if the bill came to his desk to 
increase the minimum wage, he would veto it. He promised to veto a raise for low-wage workers, minimum wage workers, who have had the same minimum wage since 2009. That means it's lower, considerably lower, like 60% lower in terms of purchasing power than it was when Dr. Martin Luther King organized the Poor People's Campaign in 1968, which was against poverty. So poverty wages were the thing that Donald Trump wanted to maintain. There was another feature of his presidency. Again, since we're on the working class and Trump's demagogy about being a friend of the worker. And again, it's not because we're for the Democratic Party. We're going to talk about the failure of the Democratic Party in a minute. But our point here is that Donald Trump is a fraud. It's a big hoax. Workers who think that Donald Trump is for you, forget about it. He's not for you. They amended under Trump a law, a regulation in the Department of Labor such that workers who were salaried employees, but at the lower end, maybe a supervisor, a lower end of the clerical office type job, if you work more than 40 hours, your boss had to pay you overtime. If you had to work 50 hours or 60 hours, you're going to get time and a half. Trump reduced that amount such that if you made more than $35,000 a year as a salaried employee, you were not eligible for overtime pay. That's Donald Trump, friend of the working class. Eight million people were denied overtime pay. And again, these are people, salaried employees, but on the lower end of salaries. And that was a loss of $1.2 billion in lost wages. Again, that was Donald Trump's policy. He went out of his way to change the rule to take away overtime pay for those workers. I think that's an extraordinarily important point, and it's worth noting that joint employer rule that I noted earlier is supposed to have cost workers $1.3 billion. So $1.3, $1.2, that's $2.5 billion of you know wages that were taken out of workers' pockets because of the decisions that were made by the Donald Trump administration. It's also worth noting that OSHA enforcement dropped to one of its lowest levels. Now, it has to be said, OSHA enforcement has been dropping shamefully for over a decade, but Trump did nothing to arrest it, actually increased it to so the number of workplace injuries happening. So Trump always says, oh, I'm for the workers. I'm for the factory jobs. Well, the reality is a lot of factory jobs, as much as we talk about, these are great jobs. And in many ways, salary wise, they have been and they continue to be, but they're extraordinarily taxing on the body. I mean, this is why things like retirement are so important for people who work in factories, because your body just becomes ravaged. And Trump actually made it easier for companies to work employees illegally, now against the rules, but because no one is minding the store, people are getting hurt on the job way more. You look at what happened in the meatpacking industry where he allowed essentially you know, unlimited line speeds. So you think about how things come across and they're using these big giant knives a lot of times to cut up the meat. And it's very easy to lose a finger, a hand, an arm to be maimed for life. And Trump was saying that they should be able to speed up the lines, which means that even more people will be injured and maimed for life and potentially killed, quite frankly. And just generally over time that all injuries in all categories are going up because the enforcement is going down. Overall, Department of Labor enforcement on wage and hour issues went down which meant that there is, I mean, who knows how much, but billions of dollars in lost wages. I mean, do you think that if Donald Trump was really a pro-worker president, he would have been the number one anti-wage theft president 
that has ever existed. There is more wage theft every year in the United States than all other form of theft combined. But in fact, wage and hour enforcement went down, not up under Donald Trump. So you can see whether we're talking about, regu- I mean, because people say, oh, regulations are bad. But the reality is, is a huge number of regulations that exist in the country are the product of working class movements of people trying to prevent rich corporations from destroying their bodies, poisoning the air, poisoning the water, and poisoning the soil where they live in order to have people be able to live a healthy, decent, longer life. And Donald Trump ultimately was colluding with corporations to make sure that the average worker actually has a shorter, less healthy, more polluted form of living. We have a national treasury, Eugene. Donald Trump plundered that. He looted it, pillaged it for the sake of the rich. Donald Trump was, in fact, Robin Hood, but in reverse. Take from the poor, give to the rich. Let's talk about the 2017 tax plan. It was a $2 trillion giveaway, basically, to corporations. The corporate tax rate went from 36 to 21%. Billionaires like Donald Trump and his kids, or if they're not billionaires, they're close to it, they're paying a lower tax rate than workers making $50,000 a year. I mean, I think it's a very good point you make. I mean, trillions of dollars in terms of not just cutting the the rates themselves, which is obviously the key element of this giveaway, but also finding different ways to game the system even easier. They made it easier, for instance, for, you know, quote unquote, S corporations, pass through corporations, which is, you know, there's legitimate reasons for why you would have that. So I don't want to get into it, but it's a way that a lot of, you know, corporations are gaming the system. This issue of depreciation costs, which is something that you can deduct from your taxes. So you own a factory, you can deduct the amount of depreciation on the machinery in that factory, but that's been well known for a long time to be kind of a black hole in a way that corporations are often manipulating the tax code to pay below the statutory rate. And so on all these different little loopholes, you see them making them larger, creating new loopholes. You know, in some ways, the main thing they address was the so-called, you know, salt the limit on your state and local taxes or what you can write off. And, you know, that was, in fact, a way designed to kneecap majority, you know, sort of progressive, liberal-leaning cities, because obviously, if you can write off all your state and local taxes, it gives them more scope to raise taxes on really anyone, but certainly on the very, very wealthy without people complaining that much. So if you put a cap on that, that means that they're probably going to reduce their taxes. So it's kind of like a double giveaway in a way that it is a giveaway at the federal tax level, but it also creates an incentive at the state and local tax level to at least not increase, if not decrease the taxes, and certainly to decrease social spending, or at least not increase social spending, because of now there being essentially a penalty built into the tax code for more progressive states and localities that want to tax the ultra-wealthy who obviously have unlimited amounts of funds and are not worried about it at all. So you can see that the entire structure of how Donald Trump approached the issue of taxes was essentially handing it off to the richest people on earth. And you can see, because you look at, say, the Wall Street Journal and other people who have been very critical of Trump on many things, but they always come back to say, but the tax cuts, those were good. The tax cuts, we were with that. And you look at, you know, the biggest anti-Trump people, the the Lynn Cheney's of the world, and they'll say, we voted with Donald Trump 98% of the time. And a lot of the stuff he did, like the taxes, that was good. And so that's really the universal thing you can see that the ultra wealthy and certainly the vast majority of the leadership of the Republican Party can get on board with is that these tax cuts were basically good, which says something about not only Trump's appeal, but the Republicans' appeal and who they really represent in terms of the core interest of them as a political party. One of the funny things about Trump's speech when he announced his next run for president was he was bragging about how the House of Representatives had come back, that Trump candidates in the midterm elections won, that it was a great sort of wave. 
That's not true. Yeah. That was not a red wave. That was maybe a red trickle. I don't know, but definitely not a red wave. One of the points that the Democrats argued, and I don't know, we may have it as part of our clip here. What Joe Biden was arguing was that the Democrats did lose the House, it appears. We don't know with certainty, but it appears that they lost, but not because of a red wave, but they lost narrowly. And Biden is boasting on Twitter. He said, we lost fewer seats than any other Democratic incumbent at a midterm election in the last, I don't know, 20 or 30 or 40 years. I can't remember the exact quote. But here you have Trump bragging, well, we did it. We got the House back. The Democrats are saying, well, we didn't lose as badly as we thought. I mean, that says different things to different people. One, it says the electorate, you expect the electorate to be disappointed when the Democrats or the Republicans take office because they're not going to deliver the promises that they made. They're not going to make the lives of the electorate or certainly the working class better. In the case of the Democrats, it really is phenomenal because They had so much going for them. I mean, Biden beat Trump by 7 million votes. Yes, it was narrow, narrow in the Electoral College in some states, in Arizona, in Georgia, Pennsylvania. But the popular vote, he won by more than 7 million votes. And when Biden came in with this, I mean, nobody voted for Biden because he was Biden. They voted for Biden because he was not Donald Trump. It showed his policies were very, Trump's policies were hated by the majority And so people wanted to get rid of Trump. And so Biden came in and he had the Build Back Better plan, sort of speaking to this anti-Trump wave that really did exist in 2020. In a way, he adopted Bernie Sanders' program, Build Back Better, they called it. If they had actually implemented Build Back Better, this would have been a phenomenal blowout for the Democrats. But they didn't. The Democrats had the House. They had the Senate. They had the White House. They didn't deliver. Let's talk about what Build Back Better was and why the Democrats, in spite of the fact that they controlled all branches of government, at least the executive branch and the legislative branch, failed to deliver. Well, you know, I think it's an important question. I think it's worth noting that the original Build Back Better plan was, you know, widely popular, you know, majority across the country in almost every single swing state and generally and even majorities amongst Republicans in certain states, especially around certain provisions of Build Back Better. So the idea that this was some sort of like, you know, partisan left wing bill or whatever, the way the Republicans and even some Democrats were presenting it is completely ridiculous when you look at the electorate. But in fact, it was centered around the things that by and large, most people want to see happen and that have been really the axis of discussion of politics in America at this sort of high level for, you know, really over a decade now. And it included a number of different points. But, you know, on the healthcare front, for instance, expanding Medicare by lowering the age and making more people, more senior citizens eligible, but also providing vision and dental care, which is sort of shocking that that's not already provided. That's because, Eugene, (laughs) you have to understand when you get older, your vision gets better and your hearing gets a lot better, which is why Medicare doesn't include dental or or vision. Yeah. I mean, really just amazing on so many levels. So, you know, but a generally popular point that people were raising, it included basically a range of expanded spending in existing programs where there was huge need. So for instance, $70 billion to try to clear the backlog of repairs for public housing that around the country has basically become slums and $90 billion, you know, for more affordable housing. That was, you know, also a 
major issue there. Of course, there was the issue that was brought in of the paid family leave and a broader expanded paid family leave Universal plan. pre-K, which Universal would be for, working, for parents, huge. Parents for working class people would be massive, really. And so you had a number of these different points. And then there was also at the earliest stages an infrastructure part of the piece that you know did pass in a very truncated, watered down form subsequently. But at the end of the day, what you had in Build Back Better, you know, you had free community college. That was also a part of it. You know, there's a range of things that existed. But basically around healthcare, education, the need for expanded social protections for working class people, the need to address affordable housing in the country, which is obviously a massive crisis. I mean, there was significant money that was then being placed towards those points. There was other elements of it, but you could see that it was broadly popular because it was broadly addressing, including climate change, by the way, and it was saying that it would basically put in place things that would mean a 50% reduction in greenhouse gases in the United States by 2030, so by the end of this decade. So on all these crucial major issues, they were going to do something. Now, in most of the cases, it probably wasn't enough. More could have been done. All those things could be true. But at the very least, it took the sort of bull by the horns of the issues people care about and said, well, we're going to do something, whether you think it's enough or not. And thus, it was broadly popular, even amongst many Republicans in many states, swing states across the country. So it speaks to your the electoral potential. But it didn't happen. And it has to be said, yes, the Republicans to some degree are to blame because they are universally were against it. But the Democrats really defeated themselves. And they defeated themselves based on their own pro-capitalist strategy in the first place. And I think the thing that we have to remember about the two political parties, I mean, the Republicans are so capitalist, you can really never go too far to the right. Because no matter how far to the right you go, your core agenda is still the core agenda of the funders of the Republican Party, which is to make them very rich. But on the left, it's different. The further left you go, the more you're critiquing capitalism and the more you're saying that capitalism is not the solution to all of our problems. But that means the ultra-rich people and the elites that pay for the Democrats like that a lot less. But the reality is the base of voters the Democrats appeal to, who tend to be lower income, working class people, people of color, younger people, want to see these more progressive policies, even if it means they are critiquing capitalism or pro-socialism. They at least want to see some of that start to happen. So the Democrats have this deep conundrum. They try to get around it by saying, well, we're going to build a big tent political party where everyone's welcome, although the left is not ever actually welcome. But the real left the is, real left is never is, welcome. Even yeah. the fake left is only halfway yeah, welcome. Even the liberal left is basically marginalized. Not to talk about the socialist right. left, not to talk about <laughs> our left. So inside of the Democrats, there's this institutional reality from the leadership, not just the political leadership, the Nancy Pelosi, but the real leadership, the people who spend the money and the various businesses that sit at the heart of that. And people have to understand, the people who buy the media ads, that's one of the biggest industries that there is, the consultants and all these other people. I mean, there's hundreds of millions of dollars a year that is being spent on this entire sort of political circus. And all those people have an agenda to try to keep that gravy train going. So amongst those elite, super rich, hyper rich people, they have this agenda to insert within the Democrats as many conservative pro-capitalist people as they possibly can, while still trying to have some semblance of addressing the things that their base cares about. But then in these sort of crunch time moments, that's when it comes out. And you see that basically there's a conservative center-right pro-capitalist majority inside of Congress, regardless of what the party labels say, that was not going to support this kind of expansive social policy. And why? The reason is very clear, because to order in order to pass Build Back Better, 
You had to raise taxes. And you could see Joe Manchin was willing to come out there and say it pretty directly. Kristen Sinema at different times also willing to say it pretty directly that they did not want to support this agenda because it was too expensive and that paying for it with tax cuts was irresponsible. They sounded just like Mitch McConnell and that they had to slim down the package. So regardless of the actual need, regardless of the problems that existed, they said we have to spend only a certain amount of money because anything else is too much for the ultra rich to pay. And they also threw in some complete nonsense about inflation. And so ultimately what happened is the package was sunk. Some elements of it subsequently were able to pass in an extremely watered down form. But you can see how the sort of anti-democratic nature of Congress in and of itself. I mean, like, why does Idaho have two senators and California? Plus this sort of core capitalist elite control of politics sort of conspired there to create the broader space by which Build Back Better was totally unable to pass. And the Democrats ended up looking completely feckless, holding the bag. But I think we have to, a lot of people who are for the Democratic Party, I think have to understand this differently. They think the Democrats are just feckless. They're idiots. They don't know how to do anything. That's totally false. It's not that they're not, I mean, maybe in some senses, maybe some of them are idiots. Maybe some of them are feckless. But this is actually how they want it to work. They actually prefer to, for it to work this way to where the sort of right wing and center right wing controls the center of gravity in politics so that they can discipline those in their own party who want to see them go further. And then they can say, well, look, half the country is for the far right. Not true. But when you have this anti-democratic election system, it looks that way. And so they can say, well, what are we supposed to do? We can't do this. We can't do that. And it creates this entire mentality by which they can discipline people, but they want this to happen. They prefer this to happen, and they go out of their way to engineer the most conservative democratic majorities they possibly can to make sure that they won't actually have to carry out a lot of the things they're promising people they'll do. I think we should sort of help people who are watching this and who think, well, look, the Republicans are awful. They're Racist party, openly racist, that's true. Openly pro-capitalist, true. Openly pro-rich, pro-reactionary, all true. So the Democrats are like a social democratic alternative, not perfect, but an alternative of a social democratic type. That's also false. The Democratic Party is not a social democratic party. If the Democrats, U.S. Democratic Party was in Europe, for instance, it would be considered a right party. It would be considered sort of like the Christian Democrats in Germany, except a little bit further to the right. And people should really understand this, that not only is the Democratic Party addicted to militarism and war and endless war spending, and as you can see now in the case of the Ukraine war, an expansion of the war rather than a negotiated end of the war, but in all ways, they have turned their back and rejected even a capitalist slash social democratic program. Because when Obama became president in 2009, in January 2009, after the 2008 election, he said he wanted to do something about the fact that 50 million people didn't have health care, couldn't go to a doctor when they were sick. So he could have proposed Medicare for all, single payer, a national health plan, which isn't still quite social democratic, but getting there. And he said no. And I think Obama said no to single payer because no other part of the Democratic Party establishment would have gone along with him. Mm -hmm. He would have been sunk on that. He knew that. So he adopted a Republican plan, the Affordable Care. Uh, well, it's worth noting before that he had the public option, which he also dropped. Which he also dropped. And, <laughs> and by the way, some people said, well, it's because the American people weren't ready for it. 77% of the population, according to a New York Times published poll in March 2009, 
said people supported single payer health plan. That means it's more than the Democrats. If you have 77 percent or 70 percent, a lot of Republicans would have thought, yeah, this is good. We're going to have a national health plan. I'm not going to go bankrupt because my kids got sick. So the Democratic Party won't even adopt a minimum social democratic program. In fact, and negotiated it away. The public option, they never even argued for it in the Obama administration because they made a secret deal, not secret deal, but a deal behind closed doors, I believe with the hospital industry, but some of the other big healthcare companies to basically say, okay, we'll drop any form of socialized healthcare if you'll support whatever else we come up with, which ends up being this Affordable Care Act. Which privatizes healthcare completely to the benefit and great profits of the insurance companies, the pharmaceuticals. So that's a situation where in U.S. politics, the Democratic Party actually marginalizes and demonizes these social Democrats. There's a handful of them, Bernie, the squad, AOC. Those people are basically marginalized. Sadly, parts of the so-called left focus their attention on this minuscule liberal wing, social Democratic wing of the Democratic Party, which is obviously flawed. We're not social Democrats, but why focus on them when they're a tiny minority? The Democratic Party is just a straight out right capitalist imperialist party. But in American politics, the Republicans are so far right that the Democrats appear to be somewhat to the left, but it's not the left. I really want to make that point because the way the Democrats are going to campaign against Trump, the way they campaigned against Trump after he became president, when they did Russiagate Mm -hmm. and tried to and succeeded at diverting the grassroots, organic, people-centered resistance to Trump's reactionary policies into this reactionary, anti-Russia, pro-war channel, which ultimately actually has helped and contributed to the war in Ukraine, in Mm -hmm. fact. Anyway, let's talk about that. No, I think it's a good point. I mean, the reality is, is the worst case scenario for the Democrats is to actually have to do what their voters want to see done because they know that's what's going to start to mess it up for them with the donors. And you can actually look at the states like California, New York, that are 100 percent dominated by Democrats, and you can see how few things they deliver for even at that level when, again, they often have super majorities, they often have total control. So it's a very similar sort of reality, and there's no excuse of the Republicans at that moment. You can certainly see the way Andrew Cuomo ran the state of New York, I mean, where he actually engineered Republican victories or independence in order to make sure that he could keep pushing these right wing policies. But even without that, in a state like California, which has total Democratic supermajority, you know, so-called liberal as governor, you could see a number of things, you know, for instance, a number of bills that would have improved the situation for farm workers in California did not make it. I mean, we could go on and on. But the point I'm making here is the leadership of the Democratic Party is a group of capitalist individuals that are deeply tied to the same capitalist elite cabals that control the Republicans. To, you know, sometimes it's like different founders of the same company. Like you look at Renaissance Technologies, one of the big Wall Street companies. One of the founders is a big supporter of the Republicans, Mercer. The other one is a big supporter of the Democrats, Simons, you know? And so it really is just like that. But, and so at sometimes the, people get married to each other, the leaders of the Democrats. I mean, literally. No, of course. You look at the obviously Mary Matlin and James Carville, but I mean, you could make another example Alan Greenspan and Andrea Mitchell. I know Andrea Mitchell's a journalist, but you can see these elite level connections, you know, just like, you know, we're in Europe or something in 1300. It's the dynastic reality of how people in the same class marry amongst one another and how that spreads power in and of itself. But at the end of the day, the Democrats have to appeal to people who are disaffected by the Republican program. So they have to put a face towards the working class. They have to put a face towards workers, but they don't actually want to have to go that far. So they have to find a way to discipline their own voters. And the easiest way possible is for them to play 
play up the elements of conservatism in their own coalition to make it easier for those people to win, to support them in primaries. I mean, let's not forget John Fetterman, who is one of the best performing Democratic candidates in this midterm. They tried to destroy him, the Democratic establishment. They tried to sink him. And everything they said to sink him has proven to be totally false. But it just gives you a sense that this is not a mistake. It's not fecklessness. It's not them dropping the ball. It's not Democrats loving to lose in the most general sense. It's that they don't want to win convincingly because the way to win convincingly ties their hands in terms of their ability to serve the elite corporate agenda. And they don't want to do that. The people who are making money off of them don't want to do that. All of this is a deep business relationship. I mean, yes, it's corporate donations, but it's not just the corporate donations. It's that there's hundreds of millions of dollars that people are getting rich off of because of the way politics works now that they also want to work. The consultants, the media buyers, all those people, they also want to work against insurgent candidates and don't want them to win for the exact same reason. So there's basically a conspiracy to keep the country in a more conservative space than the actual people in the country want it to be because of this elite corporate agenda being in control. Yeah, it gives the false impression that the people, the working people in the United States are just very, very far to the right. That's not true. I mean, the U.S. has some of the most dynamic, far-reaching social movements of the last hundred years, at least in the industrialized world, have taken place here in the United States. But there's a What's missing is a socialist party. What's missing is an ideological center. What's missing is a is a political rudder to sort of navigate through these this weird kind of politics where everything is dominated by a far, far right party and then a party that's a little bit less far right, but still basically center right. Mm -hmm. One of the things that makes all of this a little bit also confusing, and Donald Trump has used it to his advantage, is that the Democrats are so warlike the Democratic establishment. I'm not talking about the Democratic base. I'm talking about the people you were talking about, the elites. They love the war in Ukraine. They made the war in Ukraine happen. They pushed, as you and I have talked about 10 times, they pushed Russia into a corner knowing that a military counteraction by Russia was likely. They didn't try to stop it. They didn't say, okay, let's now negotiate. They just like, no, let's send more and more and more weapons to Ukraine, knowing that the likely outcome of Russian military intervention would happen. And that made them happy too, because it's good business for the military industrial complex. It puts Russia on the defensive. It strengthens America's hold over Europe. Now you have Donald Trump in his presidential announcement speech the other night, Eugene, where he said, now we're on the, we have the danger of nuclear war. And you and I have talked and said, yeah, the nuclear war danger is actually growing. So Trump, who's not anti-war, has never been anti-war, is only demagogically anti-war, is able to present the Democrats as playing chicken with Russia on nuclear war. He also made the argument that I went and met with Kim Jong-un twice, the leader of North Korea. And during the entire time he was president, North Korea didn't do another nuclear test because North Korea was actually eager for better slash normal relations with the United States. So on one front, Trump, this you know, right-wing hack, racist, and really pro-war, demanding that all of Europe spend more and more on weapons for NATO, he's now able to demagogically present himself as somehow the man of peace because the Democrats condemned him for trying to negotiate a peace deal on North Korea. Mm -hmm. The Democrats condemned him for wanting better relations with Putin, which, by the way, if you look at the record, Trump imposed more sanctions on Russia than Obama did. In, in fact, Trump sent more advanced lethal weapons to Ukraine than Obama did. Obama was cautious about that. Anyway, this is a weak spot for the Democrats because they really are a party of imperialism and war. 
And the masses of people, including people who vote Republican and Democrat and are independent, don't want war. Anyway, yeah. it's a real thing. It is a real thing. And, you know, Trump is smart enough to know that foreign policy issues are so far afield from what most people in the U.S. are really familiar with. And he's also so willing to lie without any compunction that he could take advantage of this because he doesn't really care about not only contradicting himself, but saying something that he knows he will later on not go on to carry out. So he can see the weakness of the Democrats as such a pro-war party. And he knows that most people don't know enough to fact check him on these issues. So he's just going to get up there and just lie about his own record in his own reality in order to be able to capitalize on anti-war sentiment in the population. I mean, there was an interesting study that was done in 2016 that Trump overperformed in critical counties in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, which were the three key states in that year, that he did better in the counties that lost more people in the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so obviously he was able to capitalize. But then as you point out, his record is... Well, before we get to his record, I think we also just have to talk about this is a very common rhetorical trick in U.S. politics. The party that's out of power will criticize wars by the party that's in power right. when they're unpopular because they know they can gain. The best example I can have that maybe is relevant to people who are alive now, if you will, is the war in Yugoslavia in the 1990s. You will remember very well, Brian, there was a lot of Republicans who were criticizing the Clinton administration, criticizing the war, even so much so that George W. Bush— Many people forget this. He ran on the thing that I'm not a nation builder and I'm not going to be out here like Bill Clinton waging all these wars and trying to rebuild all these countries. And we can see George W. Bush, I mean, the exact opposite of what he campaigned on. Of course, there's the famous Woodrow Wilson. You could argue the same with Bill Clinton and the peace dividend. I mean, we could go on and on LBJ and on. LBJ against Goldwater. LBJ said, Goldwater will take us to war. And then LBJ came in in 64 and sent 500,000 troops to Vietnam. Yeah. I mean, Harry Truman turning around in the Korean War when, you know, allegedly they were we were ending war, United Nations, everybody's coming together. So, I mean, that's one thing people just have to recognize. There's, there's a magician's trick in U.S. politics around war and militarism, and it's designed to fool you. And yet again, as you point out, some people in the so-called left have, in fact, been fooled by this. But I encourage people, don't be fooled. But when you look at Trump's record, you can see the reality. I mean, you pointed it out. Out very well about Ukraine. And what's equally important to me about the Russia sanctions issue is anytime Trump was criticized, he's supposed to be so strong and so tough. Anytime he was criticized on Russia, he turned around and dropped some new sanctions. He was so weak, he couldn't even defend himself. And he was always turning around and responding to the criticism by saying, oh, well, I've sanctioned Russia. But as you said, sending the lethal weapons, which Obama refused to do. So sending those lethal weapons was a big step forward to, to Ukraine, to Ukraine, yep. to where we are today. It was a yep. big step forward in pushing us closer and certainly something that I'm sure the Russians were considering. I mean, Trump was the one who was urging Egypt to bomb the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, which could have opened up a massive war in in the Nile Basin. Unfortunately, that did not happen, but you can get a sense. You know, he claims to be so against all these wars. Well, not only did he stay in Afghanistan, one of the wars he had criticized, he dropped the so-called mother of all bombs. He said he wanted to expand the U.S. nuclear arsenal in the biggest way that had ever been done before. Thankfully for him, Obama had already started doing that, but not only did he not stop it, but he extolled the realities of nuclear weapons. His entire thing he stole from whoever he stole it from, Reagan or somebody, pieced through strength of making the military so big and so violent that no one would dare to come against America. But if you're going to build it up, you're definitely going to use it. Uh, mm -hmm. The push to remilitarize Europe. Let's remember that before this happened, you know, people are saying, oh, Europe is remilitarizing. It was Trump who made the big issue of the 2% contribution of NATO countries to their military, that you should have 2% of your budget or 2% of GDP or something like that going to military, going to military spending. spending. Yep. And he was the one who took the hardest line of any American president on telling Europe to remilitarize.
rise. And let's note Ursula von der Leyen, who's now the head of the EU commission, who is the defense chief in Germany for many years, used to always note about this, that one of the most important things for Germany was to get more in Africa. So Europe remilitarizing was also a militarization of the African continent, because you look at France, you look at Germany, the vast majority, Italy now too, by the way, the vast majority of how they're saying they're going to use their militaries against Africans and in the African continent. So that was also Trump. Of course, removing himself from the Iran nuclear deal and raising the possibility of major conflict, even nuclear conflict in the Middle East, and the, you know, whatever, the sanctions, the aggressive sanctions regime the maximum pressure regime on Iran, which was absolutely brutal in terms of hurting people's lives, the huge amount of sanctions on Venezuela, which not only destroyed the economy, created a mass crisis. That's all Trump. That's all Trump. I think it's so important that we're saying it because some people who hate the Democratic Party establishment for good reason are now glomming on to Trump and pretending or accepting his pretend anti-war peace credentials. Yes, 100% pretend. And even the the DPRK North Korea issue, where I have to say was one of the few issues where I think Trump was making a correct move, it's not like this is novel Trump. I mean, he's out here saying, I did X, Y, and Z. Trump was basically negotiating the same thing that Bill Clinton did with Kim Jong-il, that Jimmy Carter did with Kim Il-sung. And like all three times, it's almost impossible to make any sort of peace as it concerns the Korean Peninsula because it's so key and core to the U.S. attempt to totally control Eastern Asia, that the powerful interests behind it on both parties just collude massively anytime you move in that direction. But, you know, it's not as if this was a new thing that can be attributed to Trump's novel genius on diplomacy. He was just picking up where the last, you know, sort of attempt to do this left off. And so at the end of the day, when you really look at Trump's sort of proposal, oh, my gosh, how did I leave out the biggest one? Trump has been the number one promoter of the new Cold War with China. I mean, Trump, I mean, obviously Obama did the pivot to Asia, but Trump added the just very explicit racism to it, rhetorically amped it up, turned China into an even bigger enemy, certainly than anyone before him, and was really the progenitor of this idea that the U.S. has to do everything possible to go after China and try to contain China and to hobble China. He put sanctions on China on multiple different levels. And let's not forget, everyone points out the Nancy Pelosi trip as being, you know, uniquely saber rattling. Her trip to Taiwan. Definitely true that it was saber rattling and probably the highest level. Yeah. But let's not forget under Trump, Alex Azar, the head of the HHS, went to Taiwan also to rattle the saber against China. That it was, I think, one of the very first things he ever did with the intercession of former Senator Bob Dole to increase the amount of weapons and money going to Taiwan, which right after the election was considered like, oh my God, look at how Trump's turning towards Taiwan, this so-called porcupine policy of Taiwan. All of that was being aggressively promoted inside the Trump administration. The man took no action whatsoever against the national security state. So-called anti-deep state, they're all collaborating against Trump, this, that, and the third. Trump didn't do anything to reel in the Patriot Act, didn't do anything to try to reel in Section 702, didn't do anything really of note whatsoever to stop the massive spying apparatus against people here in the United States and around the world being waged totally unlawfully and completely outside of constitutional protections by the NSA, by the FBI, by all these other people. The only time Trump cared about the national security state is when his own friends got ensnared in it. And really not when they got ensnared, but when he got worried they might say something negative about him to some sort of, you know, legal panel that then, you know, he's complaining about the deep state and this, that, and the third and the abuse of the FISA process. But that was all secondary because the reality is, is as much as it's true the FISA process was abused in Russiagate in many, many different ways, Trump never once spoke out against Section 702 that governs the FISA court. Never once. And it comes up for reauthorization all the time. He never once spoke out about any of those pieces or provisions or whatever it may be. So a total fraud, a total huckster. I mean, this is Donald Trump. I mean, have people forgotten who he is? 
of WWF Hall of Fame fame. I mean, this is who the guy is. He's a showman. He's a huckster. No one ever knows how much money he's worth. His businesses oftentimes appear like shell games. The guy's constantly on TV, art of the deal. I mean, all his entire persona of what we've always known Trump to be since the 1980s when he came on the scene is exactly how he has run the presidency. He tries to sell what he knows people want to buy. He knows there's a ton of working class people in this country who are in serious pain, that there are a ton of people who are sick and tired of the endless war machine, and that there are a ton of people who know, rightfully, that the only reason they're in a ton of pain economically and there's this huge war machine and there doesn't seem to be anyone coming to help is this deep, super elite cabal. So Trump sells himself as an alternative to that. Sadly, some people believe it, but the record doesn't bear out anything like what he claims to be. And let's also, every one of us, remember that when the nationwide uprising against racism happened following the killing of George Floyd, the sickening, disgusting, cavalier murder of George Floyd by Derek Chauvin, and people went to the streets in Minneapolis. You were there. You covered it for Breakthrough. Nationwide uprising, 25, 30 million people came into the streets. What was Donald Trump's response? This man who says he's against the, quote, deep state, he wanted to invoke the Insurrection Act. He wanted to carry out martial law. He wanted to use U.S. military operations against the battle space, which was, of course, the cities of the United States. And I don't just mean big cities, big, small, medium-sized cities. The people of the United States who were protesting righteously against racism were the targets of Donald Trump. Eugene, as we start to wrap up here, you can't but notice that the Wall Street Journal, the right wing of the ruling class, Wall Street, they love Donald Trump's tax cuts. They were all about it. They have an editorial saying, Trump the loser, get out of the race, don't run. They make the point that Trump, even though he narrowly won the Electoral College in 2016, the Republicans lost in 2018. They lost the presidential election in 2020. Now they basically didn't succeed with what they thought they could with the midterm elections. That Trump's a loser. The New York Post, owned by Murdoch, who also owns Fox News, they had a front cover that mocked Trump. It was like Trumpy Dumpty, who could not build a wall, had a great fall, and all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Trumpy together again, using a takeoff on the childhood nursery rhyme. A big part of the Republican Party would prefer DeSantis at this point because Trump is a loser, not because they reject his policies. They like many of his policies, but Trump himself is only about Trump. The January 6th you know, insurrection, that was about keeping Trump in power, not about keeping the other elites in power. He wanted to stay in power. He was willing to sort of commit the cardinal sin against U.S. bourgeois politics, which is to challenge the peaceful transfer of power between the two ruling class parties. Trump sort of ignored all of that in his presidential announcement speech. He did start, by the way, as you pointed out, attacking China, making that a keynote. But anyway, the Republican Party establishment, a big part of it, I think would like to get rid of Donald Trump, but he has a big popular base, so it's not that easy. The Democrats seem to favor running against Trump compared to others because, like, let's face it, Joe Biden could not have become president except he had Donald Trump as his opponent. I mean, there's nothing attractive about Joe Biden as a candidate. Anyway, let's just talk about how the ruling class centers of power are looking at the Trump announcement. I think many of them would have been very happy if he didn't announce. No, I, I think that's very true that many of them would have been very happy. And I think, you know, there's a number of reasons. I mean, I think one, Trump is so 
rude and crude, I don't know how else to describe it, that he makes any policy associated with him more toxic. So even if the policy is, even if it's good, it seems toxic if it comes from Trump. And certainly if it's already bad, then it's going to seem even more toxic. So Trump alienates such wide parts of the population that then it creates the possibility that the things they want to see happen, the tax cuts, the other pieces, get more opposition than they might not normally. Now, they obviously get a lot of opposition, but someone who's, let's say, a upper middle class person, maybe go both ways, maybe kind of soft, been voting Republican for a while, but they hate Trump for all of these sort of non-tax cut related reasons. They'd benefit from the tax cuts, but maybe they say, well, look, I'll put someone in there like Biden. He might raise the taxes a little bit. Maybe he'll keep them the same, but at least we won't have all this, you know, rude, crude, craziness, chaos, whatever happening. So it means that the core of the Republican policies that people like the Wall Street Journal, the Rupert Murdochs of the world want to see, those policies become endangered by Trump because outside of their own unpopularity, it carries the sheen of of unpopularity. Mm. I mean, it's the same reason if you think about it, why the Republicans tried for so many years to use dog whistle politics and not outright racism, because they knew in the wake of the civil rights movement, and this is really why they were able to capture so many of the former segregationists, because they were able to help them kind of upgrade their game a little bit, Mm. that you couldn't just come right out and just be like old school George Wallace segregationists. Like at this point, if you're going to do that, and of course, this is what Lee Atwater said very well about the campaigns he ran in the 80s and the Reagan administration, George H.W. Bush administration. This is certainly something that many people, including H.R. Haldeman, said about how Nixon looked at things. We have to look for other random issues like taxes, like whatever it may be that we can present kind of neutrally, but the core of which we can still kind of appeal to the same constituency that the sort of Jim Crow bourbon ruling class was appealing to and use them politically. Politically, but we don't want to be too captured by the idea that we're racist segregationists because people don't like that. And even people who might be with our agenda on taxes or some of these other things, abortion, whatever it may be, they might not be with us if they thought this was some sort of straight out segregationist thing. So Trump kind of brings that back. I mean, you know, we look at his campaign launch, which was extraordinarily racist towards Mexican-Americans and other immigrants and the way he's addressed the issue of quote unquote crime in America, which is a continuation of the demonization of black America, particularly young black males. You look at the sex and the patriarchy that he just exudes and celebrates. I mean, all these negative factors about Trump that, you know, huge parts of the population, people who are not white, women, others who are deeply offended by, it then attaches to everything else. So I think that's part one of why a lot of these establishment figures don't want Trump. It's not that they don't like a lot of his policies, but they don't think he can sell them in a way that's convincing because it relies essentially on mobilizing a certain kind of white grievance politics that clearly, as we can see from the midterm elections and the 2020 election, has a ceiling and also has a counter mobilizing effect on people who feel threatened Mm. by it. I think there's a couple other elements that are relevant to this. Really one other one that's relevant to it. I think for the Wall Street Journals of the world especially, they don't like the fact that Trump is willing to sort of expand the bounds of some of the things Republicans have been unable to say. I mean, of course— Trump is very pro-war. But just the fact that he's willing to criticize war, I think, is a problem to the Wall Street Journals of the world who are hardcore neocons who want to celebrate. And if you look at the op-ed page, all the stuff they're ever writing is people celebrating the use of American military power to control the world and to shape the agenda of every single country. So they don't like that someone is at least creating space for that critique to grow. They probably don't believe that Trump is for real on a lot of these things. But if you create more space in the conversation— 
people who are for real, you know, sure. people who are real activists who really want to see an end to war, that gives them a little bit more oxygen. I think also Trump has introduced class back into politics. That is bad in America. If you look at the history of American politics, the ruling elite does everything possible to kind of declass the discussion. You know, you look at countries like the UK, capitalist country, but like they'll keep statistics based on class. There's a strong class identity in the discussion of how politics plays out. But in America, they want you to think that everyone's about to be the next millionaire, that there are no working class solidarity interests. Everyone's middle class. You're constantly moving up in life. We live in a meritocracy. And so ultimately, that's another another reason why these wedge issues are consistently used by both major political parties, totally decontextualized from the class structure and the political economy of our society, because it helps muddy the waters about who really runs society, the tiny number of people who, you know, control everything, right? Like, basically, society is broken down into people who got to get up every day and work to survive or hustle, and the people who are guaranteed to survive no matter what, because the other people working are generating their income. And when you have that kind of consciousness, it changes how you view, view politics, and it usually doesn't change it in favor of the ultra-rich. So Trump has, again, opened up a little oxygen for class politics. It's totally fake, totally demagogic. But the very fact that he's talking about the working class, introducing it back into the political discourse, means that people who do speak for a working class agenda have the opportunity to step up and say, well, that's not the real working class agenda. This is what it is. And then you can contest that on the basis of, you know, the you know validity of the various points. So I think these people don't like Trump because he makes it difficult to sell their policies, but he also opens up too much political space for their real opponents, the true left, the real pro-working class, anti-imperialist people to also be able to gain more legitimacy and gain more oxygen. So it creates a sort of chaotic element and destabilizing element into the body politic that I think is very dangerous to a lot of these establishment Republicans. And so now you can see that they are turning on him. Also the Club for Growth. I mean, the Club for Growth, who used to be one of Trump's biggest allies, which is essentially just a Trojan horse, super PAC, dark money outfit for the richest people on the planet, is now becoming the number one promoter of DeSantis against Trump. And so you can see all these elite players are coming into the fray to try to knock Trump out the box. Now, will they be able to? That I actually doubt because they're all so hollow that even Trump's fake appeal to a lot of his base is so much more substantive than their attempts to address it in the most ridiculous way that I don't think they can succeed. But you can see that, you know, there is obviously sort of an elite reaction to Trump on the right wing that's a little bit negative because they feel he doesn't really represent the best vessel for their politics. Now, that being said, none of the people they had before him who they also championed were better either. I mean, that's why Obama was winning. But you can at least see that nevertheless, there's an attempt to close down the politics of the Republican Party away from Trump and more towards someone they view as more acceptable to the needs of the elite agenda and more pliable because Trump is is rich. However rich he, he is or is another issue, but it's not like he needs these people to survive. But a lot of these career politicians, they do actually need them, which means that you can crack the whip on them quite a bit more. All right. We have had the midterm elections and two days later, the presidential race has started. The midterm elections, Eugene, as you alluded to, $16.7 billion was spent on elections that are not the federal elections, not the presidential elections. That means a great deal more will be spent in the coming elections. Donald Trump is running again. We're off to the races, so to speak. I think it's critically important for working class folks, progressive forces, people who want to fight against racism or patriarchy fight for LGBTQ rights, fight for the right to unionize, to have an independent political orientation towards the plutocracy, plutocracy, not a democracy, the 
the rule of money, the plutocracy, when you're spending $16 billion on a midterm election, that's the rule of money. It's going to be highlighted again. Eugene, we have to be able to pay attention, critique the candidates, critique the Democrats and the Republicans, and at the same time, not get sucked into being like spectators to this spectacle and instead to build an independent grassroots working class movement, a multinational working class movement for real justice, because that's where change comes from. You get the last word. Well, I think that's an extraordinarily well taken point. And you can see these. I mean, it really is a plutocracy. I mean, I already mentioned Andrea Mitchell being married to Alan Greenspan. But here's another example of how these people are all one in together. Tucker Carlson, allegedly the number one enemy of Hunter Biden. Who did he ask to write a recommendation for his kid to get into Georgetown University? Hunter Biden. So you can see it's all, you know, they're all in the same country clubs, the same elite universities. I mean, it's, it's the the elite reality of having a certain level of money and the things, the institutions and the, and the rewards that that gives you access to. It's all one piece and they all manipulate everyone else, whether it's, you know, George Soros on the, the so-called liberal side, whether it's Timothy Mellon of the Mellon banking fortune, who also has his own huge corporation on the Republican side, whether it's, you know, Jim Simons on the Democratic side from Wall Street, whether it's Ken Griffin from Citadel Capital on the Republican Republican side on Wall Street. It's all the same big money institutions manipulating the two wings. It's two wings of the same bird at the end of the day. And I think that's why you have to look at what has been the most insurgent political moments in the country tend to be when there are independent movements that can't be controlled by either party. And that's what makes them terrified. I mean, you look certainly at the populist movement in this country that was drowned in blood because you have poor black people and poor white people. Yeah, they still had a lot of differences, but they were coming together to say, well, at the very least, we're all going to be against monopoly capitalism and big money, whatever else we disagree on. Murdered people, stuffed ballot boxes, stole elections. The Reconstruction governments in the South just before that, same thing. The Civil Rights Movement, actually, which large, I mean, why Why did they kill Malcolm X? Why did they kill Martin Luther King Jr.? It's because they couldn't be controlled. They were actually expanding the boundaries of political imagination beyond the two-party system and getting millions of people to follow them. And so ultimately, you can see historically the most dangerous thing to the ruling elite are independent political movements that cannot be controlled. Now, they may have a lot of different contradictions. They may tack this way or tack that way. Different people may have called themselves different things. But really, the class independence of mass movements in this country that are made up primarily of working and poor people and that are led by working and poor people and that are funded by working and poor people and who at critical moments say, well, we're just not going to do what you say. We're just, I mean, you know, as Malcolm X said, well, I'm not going to promote a policy that traps the black community in the two major party system. And I'm going to call out both parties. Martin Luther King, I'm not going to stay silent on the war. I mean, forget not staying silent on the war. In 64, they said, don't protest because you don't want to hand the election to Goldwater. King would not agree to that. The SNCC and the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party who wouldn't agree to the Atlantic City Compromise in 64. So even these things that are not like explicitly super radical things, you could see it still spoke to the general fear. Well, you know, Reconstruction was not a a, a Paris Commune style movement. It was an American democratic movement in the truest possible sense. Still was drowned in blood and destroyed because it was too independent. You can't have a movement of poor and working people in this country that refuses to bend the knee to the two major political parties without them freaking out and combining and trying to destroy you. So if you feel that the two major political parties, and not really even the parties, because the rank and file of these parties have no impact on how they're actually run, but the core elite billionaire adjacent people who run them, if you really feel that is the core of what is holding back society from improving and advancing and becoming better so that everyone can give longer, better, healthier lives, then you have to build an independent political movement that is going to make them freak out because that's the only way that you can start to change the ground underneath the, the broader political body politic to move things in a better direction. Eugene Perrier, thank you. Thanks for having me. 
You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. 